0: Try my people
1: hey everybody everybody welcome welcome once again to this friday politics roundup yes it is march 4th 2022 welcome to raging chickens friday politics roundup this is kevin mahoney creator and founder of raging chicken each week we break down the good the bad and the ugly in state and national politics today we've got a little bit of a special show we're kind of changing things up a little bit here on friday getting all going you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month head on over to patreon.com rc press You can also help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. Now on today's show, right, today's politics Up, I welcome once again Amy Connect is back to the show. Yay! (claps) Today's show we're going to be digging down into the great debate. Debate. Now the universal basic income and check in on some of the latest school board meetings at the Penridge School District. Yes, Penridge met again this year, of this week, sorry. (laughs) Yes, they have to carry out that right-wing extremist experiment somehow. There it is. Anyways, earlier this year, Philadelphia announced that it will begin a very limited guaranteed income pilot program as soon as, well, as soon as this month. I guess it's waiting on some approvals at the state level. The pilot program would give a maximum of 60 people, about $500 a month for 12 months. Um, 60 people were drawn at random um, and you know this is in a kind of a part of an increasing number of experiments that are taking place at municipalities kind of around the country um, to looking at uh, guaranteed basic income as a way of kind of ensuring one getting people out of poverty ensuring that there is a floor right um, that people are not just cast aside. Now, UBI, universal basic income, is not just one thing. They range from libertarian proposals, right, um, to give people money and wipe out all the social welfare programs. We're not going to be talking about that today, <laughs> right? Um, but others, more, say, democratic socialist programs, to give people money as a baseline for being part of a society while maintaining or expanding existing programs, like Medicare for All, for example. So we'll take a look at some preliminary results of the Stockton, California's UBI experiment, the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, or SEED. They were to kind of give $500 a month uh, for about 125 individuals, Um, so there's that. We're also gonna be talking about um, an experiment took place in Jackson, Mississippi, and look at the report, Becoming Visible, Race, Economic Security, and Political Voice in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, That looks at how policies created through racial um, exclusion and oppression are maintained behind a veneer of race neutrality and to reject reform efforts that tink- tinker at the margins of society. Then we'll also, as I said, be checking in with the Penbridge School District board meeting this past Monday. Uh, we're starting to see an organized pushback in the community to the board's thinly veiled extremism. Amy Connect was there, yes she was, at the meeting. Looking forward to this one. And for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, check out his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to show.com for all the latest across all those platforms. And it's official. Yes, you know it. Season two of the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast is flooding the streams. You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. Special shout out uh, goes to Jonathan Mann, of course, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at at Song Day Man. That's at Song Day Man on Twitter. Um, please do check him out. And sorry, I was just looking for something that I just can't seem to find right at the moment. Um, also one of at, uh, attention gamers out there, the Game Inn is a town based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show and they've got everything from N60 um, sorry, N64s, so the latest consoles, their video games for all platforms, loads of collectibles, action figures, and Funko Pops. Yes, and kids get a discount with every A on their report card. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the game in. Got a question about a game, look for something hard to get. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at, at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Look, everybody, if you want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No punches, homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as 5 bucks a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and choose your membership level. We're here for the fight and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement, the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going on over to patreon.com slash rc press today. So uh, without further ado, let me welcome back to the show, uh, Amy Connect. Amy, how you doing this morning?
0: Hi, I'm doing good.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, it's like uh, it's been quite a week once again, and uh, we've got like so much stuff that's going on. And it almost feels like a a kind of a a bit of a break in this week of insanity, especially with what's going on with Ukraine, to actually start looking at, um, you know, programs that are actually looking to build the future, right? And not just tear it down. So,
0: oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think this is, um, I think the past, uh, like, couple of years, these programs have been, been a really big, like, silver lining within, like, amid all of the chaos that's happened. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> exactly uh one thing i did want to mention uh if i could put those here i forgot to mention at the top of the show notes i want to let everybody know that uh On Monday, as part of Out to Coop Live, I'm going to have Alyssa Bowman on the show. Alyssa Bowman is a researcher at a progressive watchdog group called True North Research. um, And she's been looking into the dark money behind the concerned moms groups um, that are um, emerging everywhere and taking over school board meetings and advocating for some extremist policies. And some of those groups have also been mobilized to try to uh, push back against uh, Joe Biden's nomination for the Supreme Court. So we'll be looking at that on a Monday at 7 p.m. That's Alyssa Bowman. i um, looking forward to that discussion, too, as well. So, uh, so, Amy, let's get into it. I mean, so we have, you know, basically we talked about this when when you were on the show kind of got a few weeks back now, um, uh, we were originally planning on doing this and then kind of it seemed like, you know, all hell would continue to break loose every chance we got. <laughs> Um, But, you know, it seems like an important thing because a a few weeks back, uh, we saw actually a few months back, uh, Philadelphia announced that it wanted to move ahead with this uh, this guaranteed income, this pilot study guaranteed income. That was going to be work. I think with what sixty individuals, I believe. Yeah. And to check it, I mean, it's very, very limited study. But looking at the possibility of um, of bringing guaranteed income as a policy um, to Philadelphia as a way of getting people out of poverty. Um, That's what kind of kind of started us off on this. And you, of course, have done a bunch of kind of research and looked into a bunch of programs across the country. So uh, we'll check into that too as well. So uh, what do we? I mean, what do we know about this? About what's happening in Philadelphia? I know it's pretty. It's pretty sparse at this point uh, but what's your understanding of where we're at?
0: Uh, Well I mean basically there's been a lot of there's been a lot of movement with UBI programs um, especially within inner cities large major uh, metropolitan areas so I think Philadelphia was definitely on the list to be looked at. Um, You know this city hasn't been doing well uh, for the past couple of years. Crime rates are up, poverty rates are are high Um, so I think that this experiment is going to be good for the city of Philadelphia. Um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it's executed in a manner where you know, where like a lot of these other programs are being executed. They're, they're community based, right. They're not, they're not like have all these middlemen, you know, um, a lot of these organizations work directly with these people and they're in contact with families and, and participants. Um, you know, without a lot of the red tape. So I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that that's how this moves forward in Philadelphia. Uh, because, I mean, the, the 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 like I said, the poverty rates are just, they haven't been very good, right? Like, there was a couple of studies that have been done um, by, uh, who was it, the Pew Charitable Trust uh, did a study in 2019 on the state of Philadelphia. Um, and it was basically going over numbers between, you know, 2011 and 2017. Um, and it said... You know, uh, during that time, the city, I think it had, like, what, roughly 26% of the population was uh, sitting at the poverty line or, like, below the poverty line. Um, And for in Philadelphia, I mean, that estimates to 380,000 to 400,000 residents. That's a lot of people.
1: That's a lot of people.
0: That is a lot of people, right? And, I mean, especially, you know, in Philly, we just, you know, they have the, the economy. I mean, I'm not well-versed enough to tell you exactly statistics on how the economy is doing over well, but they have had a decline in in jobs, right? I mean, you just had the closing of the former Philadelphia Energy Solution right. oil refinery, which, you know, um, basically ousted about a thousand workers, I would say, you know, of, of of refinery workers and stuff like that. But see, even those type of industries weren't really helping you know, the people that this type of program is going to be reaching out to, right? Like, these are people that weren't You know, they weren't hired at PES, especially in South Philadelphia. So it was pretty, it was pretty segregated.
1: 100 percent. You know, and you make a good point. Um, You know, I I know we were back and forth a bit um, with the show and you've been doing some research on this, too, as well. And, you know, you kind of mentioned like some of the history I mean, Philadelphia. Not only is Philadelphia one of the poorest cities, poorest major cities kind of in the country, it's also one of the most segregated. Right. And that has a long history that goes back to the redlining all the way back in the 1930s. And so Yeah. um, which is, you know, so we've got these kind of racial and economic um, kind of overlapping kind of like oppressions, exclusions, exploitations that are going on there in Philly.
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the Philadelphia Inquirer had put out an article, uh, front, front pager, uh, back in October of 2021. And it was talking about, you know, that Philadelphia is actually one of the most diverse cities, um, but it is one of the most segregated. Um, and that's crazy, right? And then... exactly you know, I, so I have this copy of this newspaper and it, and it lists, um, it was a Sunday paper and it like, and it gives you a whole map of Philadelphia and the breakdown of, you know, racial composition and stuff like that. And then, you know, when I was looking at these reports from the Pew trust, if you take their information and kind of like overlap it on top of this map that the inquirer had put out, I mean, it pretty much matches up. Right. So, you know, the, the, I'm going to say like, you know, the whiter the area in Philadelphia, the higher the income levels and, you know, the darker, so to say, areas of Philadelphia um, are showing definitely like subpar income levels, which, you know, there should be no reason for that. Right. Like that's that's policy right there.
1: 100%. And so, I mean, we're going to look forward to this now because right now, we're, as, as we were talking about before the show, I guess the um, the pilot is, uh, they were talking about in the article that they had on this and WHYY saying this could roll out as soon as March, which I was, we're in March right now, um, but it has to undergo a certain, like a review, right, uh, at the state level to make sure that they're allowed to do this program. Is that that
0: right? yeah that's what the information was saying and it's stating too that like they want to make sure uh the people who are running this they want to make sure that the participants aren't going to be affected so if somebody is say like has uh food stamp benefits or something like that you know this cash assistance um base, well this i shouldn't say cash assistance it's more of, it's it's a supplemental income is what they're going to be getting but that has the possibility of affecting someone's eligibility for food stamps right because you would want to you would have to include that as in your total overall income right? right and that might push people over because you know um if you're even over by if you even make enough money or you declare enough money and you're even over by uh, like what is it like a thousand dollars like they kick people off yep. right away which you know I mean my goodness I mean have you looked at the price of food lately so <laughs> Um, So that's a really important factor, and I think that's a a really good development. Like, I think waiting for this approval just to make sure that there aren't going to be, you know, these other issues that pop up, right? Because there's always that other that happens that somebody's like, oh, well, you know, um, like what what you were talking about with the libertarian approach to it, right? It was like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to give people this money, but we're going to take away everything else. And that's going to have to suffice, right? And that's not going to work because these programs, I mean, people are getting $500 with the Stockton Economic and Power Demonstration. I mean, their families are receiving $500 with the Magnolia Mothers Trust down in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. It's $1,000. But I mean, as anybody other than perhaps the politicians understand, I can't live off $1,000 a month. I couldn't right. live off of $500 a month. So to take away any other program would just, It it completely defeats the purpose.
1: Exactly. Because this
0: is about this is about economic empowerment for people, not to make it. it, This is not like okay, I'm gonna give this and then take away this. This isn't this isn't like that.
1: One hundred percent. So before we dive into these programs, right, we're kind of exactly what you're at. Let's kind of take a step back here, just so that we're kind of kind of setting the table, so to speak, with what we're talking about here. So if you're kind of talking about universal basic income or guaranteed basic income, what are we actually talking about? What does this mean?
0: Well, uh, a basic universal income. So I I would look at it like this, right? Don't look at it as the government or the state is paying you an income to live off of because it's not that it's 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 more of like a baseline, right? Like a basic universal uh, uh, supplemental income of some sort. So it's a baseline. That's all it is. So it's a lot of, like, think of like how we got uh, a lot of people receive the child, the child tax credits this year. They, they receive this extra money every month. Great example. And it was a wonderful thing because it really, that extra money. So say if you got, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars, maybe up to a 750 it, it depends. But that, that's more or less what a lot of these programs Um, How these programs view universal basic income right like it's just a baseline for people and then you include all of the other Resources all of these other social programs that are out there right to help people because it's not just about giving somebody You know money it's about maybe offering you know finance literacy classes for people you know because a lot of these like say down in Jackson um you know a lot of these these single mothers down there who are receiving this they haven't been able to complete all of their schooling or they haven't had the chance to educate themselves right on simple things of like even um, you know, in just simple investing or even just how to properly manage bank accounts. Um, and that's something that, you know, is very important. It's vital, um, to include with, with these type of programs, but that's not all of them. Some programs, it is more or less just a cash, you know, mm-hmm. it's cash driven, um, because that's what people say that they needed. But like I said, it's all just a baseline. And I think that's how we really ought to look at it. This is not about the government paying every little thing for people.
1: Right. And I think that, you know, what's really important in the bigger kind of discussion around UBI, too, as well, is that, you know, Amy is already alluding to this um, already. It's like you've got this range of proposals, right, that those are on the kind of like the right, the libertarian right. They basically see this. Okay, yeah, we're going to give people, say, a couple thousand dollars a month. Right, a um, couple thousand dollars a month as as your kind of the UBI, but then we're going to like basically wreck the welfare state, right? So and they see that as a cost saving measure, right? Where they can reap more profit, right, for themselves, right? So as a redistribution, like it ultimately works out to be a redistribution of income upwards, right? Because you're basically removing these kind of huge areas of kind of social programs. That's on the libertarian right. On the other on the other side, and the le- more on the left hand side is kind of like to say, no, look, as um there's like i think there's two versions of it one we got a little bit of this when it came to uh andrew yang's um campaign we mm. got a little bit of this when we were t- we heard about it in the green new deal um and we see some of the kind of utopian version that's something like this the andrew yang version is like look you know the robots are coming and again this has been a trope that's been around <laughs> since you know like beginning of the 19 19- 1900s right so the robots are coming and then people are going to be put out of work and then you can't just let people starve. So you got to give them a, give them a universal basic income. Right. And, and that's, that's kind of a kind of an important thing because there is, you know, a degree of automation that is actually going to have an impact, um, on, um, displacing jobs. Although the research on that is very, very mixed uh, how much that actually happens, um, and to what ways it happens. Um, people get displaced for jobs more by kind of international policies that allow for kind of the globalization of labor, but we mm-hmm. can get on that for another time. Um, <laughs> (laughs) So that's the one thing. But on the other hand, when you're talking about um, like the Green New Deal, right, the Green New Deal is a recognition that, you know, one, look, there's going to be a, a significant transition that we are going to have to go through in order to get off of fossil fuels. Right. And that is going to mean that there are going to be the elimination of fossil fuel jobs. Right. On the one hand. Right. We want to make sure that we locate those new jobs in those areas that are those jobs being displaced. And so people are not left behind. Right. But a second layer to that, too, as well, is to having this kind of UBI as a way of kind of setting the ground. Right. To ensure that nobody's going to get left behind. And then you've got people like uh, Russell. I'm sorry. What's his name here? Um, His last name is Bregman. Russell Bregman, I think his name is. Uh, Rutger. I'm sorry. Rutger Bregman. He's a Dutch journalist, came out with a great book called, say, it's called like the utopia for realers or something like this. When he was arguing for UBI on another whole level, that to say, like, look, setting this floor as kind of a universal basic income is that so people are not. Just wedded to bad employers and just having to work for the sake of working, even at crap jobs, just for to do that. Shouldn't we be able to kind of think about a future in which we need that we can work less, <laughs> right? And and spend our time in much more productive activity with our families and our communities mm-hmm. and so on, right? So there's a range of proposals. The ones we're really focusing on today are more this kind of this more of this recent move to actually pilot programs. Um, in cities across the united states um and kind of digging into some of the kind of preliminary results we're seeing and i think you're going to find that they're they're pretty remarkable so so amy where should we begin which one of these do you want to kind of start with uh the um, seed program or
0: yeah we can start with with the okay. seed program because that one i have i have you know my my main focus was on the magnolia's mother's trust. so but we can definitely start with the that one um and i just so this the seed program so it stands for um in stockton which is in california um mm-hmm. so this is the stockton economic empowerment demonstration and this was actually the very first mayor led ubi program um in the country which is really interesting um uh i i'm so terribly sorry i forget the mayor's name who originally there's another one now um yeah. <laughs> who had started it but basically michael tubbs
1: michael Tubbs, that, that's yep, right I just found it, yep.
0: um, but basically you know and this this program was open to people you know who were living you know at or below that poverty line and basically it was an application for families um and if you are a participant, you were receiving $500 a month, no strings attached for uh, for a year, right? And it was to be able to give some of these families a leg up, and it was uh, definitely like community changing. This was something that hasn't really been attempted before. I don't know if people are, are familiar with the areas um, surrounding Stockton or anything like that, but they have high poverty rates, higher crime rates, um, and it's a really like, it's just, it can be a depressed area. Um,
1: so I thought one of the interesting things about the study, what they were setting out to do there, too, as well, because this is also we should say that um, there's a uh, down at, at UPenn, um Let me skip the I'm, I just lost the name of it for a second. There is a organization It's called the Center for Guaranteed Income Research, um, the Social Policy and Practice University of Pennsylvania. Um, two of the, the leads at that center down there um, kind of wrote this report, this uh, Dr. Stacia West and Dr. Amy Castro Baker. Um, uh, and then uh, were kind of the two of the primary offer, uh, authors of this and looking at some of the results. And one of the things that they were interested in it is not only the, the question of does this get people out of poverty, right, but they were interested in the person as a whole, right? I mean, looking at does this, what kind of, what kind of effects does this have on health and well-being? What the health does this have on mental health, right, and on people's kind of uh, – understanding of themselves in the future. So that seemed to be a really kind of a whole series of questions that seem absolutely integral and critically important to the, like, you know, living.
0: It, it does. And, it, and, it, and the, the seed demonstration, the, um, the, the results from them, excuse me, it's a <laughs> I've only had like one cup of coffee this morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the results, the data that came back from this program were beneficial, right? And they showed that people were actually mentally, and emotionally a lot more healthier um, with this because you do it was giving it was giving families it was giving these individuals you know a sense a little bit more of, of financial security right and you know we, we have to admit to ourselves we live in a, a consumer driven society right like you have to have money <laughs> right. to be able to live and you need money for everything um, you know, when when you don't, that causes a lot of health problems. Um, It can cause a lot of stress. It can cause a lot of mental health issues as well. Physical health, right? Because people will have to choose between either going to the doctor, paying for medications, or paying for gas so they can get to work, or medications, or food, right? I mean, that's terrible if you have to pick between whether or not your family eats or whether you go to the doctor because you're not feeling well. Um, You know, and that can have potentially long-term, you know, even 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 greater risks of of you know someone's health deteriorating later in life or in in more expenses and stuff like that um but what they were what with the seed program they had found um that let's see so this was started i do believe in 2018 or was it before that 19
1: to february 2019
0: 19 that's right so uh so it says here that when at the start of the program 28% of the recipients and just to clarify the first round of of this UBI included 125 randomly uh chosen residents who were all aged 18 and they had to then there were some stipulations right so you had to live Uh, In one of these low-income neighborhoods in order to qualify right and that's just to guarantee like so you don't need somebody Who's raking in a hundred thousand dollars a month or a year is you know applying for a program like this because they don't need it This isn't for them Mm -hmm. Um, But it says here that 28 percent of recipients had full-time employment Um, And then after one year after a year and they had done some analysis on this that the uh, rate of recipients who were employed for time where it was up to 40% so that's 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 amazing right there right so that that shows that like okay so you were giving people this extra money so there was an interview um, with this one gentleman from the program and he said he was able to quit his current job right that extra $500 gave a little cushion room for him to go out and look for (laughs) another job that made more money or had better benefits or had this right so he was able to elevate himself in a few months' time just with these simple payments. I mean, and that's, that's to me, it's like, it's so simple, right? Like, it's so simple, it almost makes you wanna question, like, well, there has to be something else, right? Because we live in a society where everything is so complex all the time that sometimes, like, just these simple solutions to things, right. right? Like, people are stating that they need cash. They don't make enough money, and that's what they need. They don't need all these other things sometimes or you know they need a combination of it right like and and that's where it really comes down to um but another benefit right that was analyzed by the seed program was you know providing for elderly for elderly folks who are on an incredible like fixed income right who definitely you know you hear reports of of them having to choose between medications you hear of people dying because they can't afford their medications
1: exactly I think it's just fascinating. It's like, you know, because one of the big, you know, the big knocks when, you know, whatever, just people are just being reactive to something. They're like, oh, you're just going to give people the money to be alive. They're going to be lazy and they're not going to work. Right. It turns out that it's exactly the opposite happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. Number one, like the people, like a lot of the people that were in this this study, for example, like, like you said, were already employed. Right. And then you find an increase in employment afterwards. You know, because, like, you know, my, my friend Rick, Rick Smith, he would always say is like, you know, look, being poor is expensive. Yeah, right. <laughs> because, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's ironic, right, because it's expensive both in terms of time, but it's also expensive in terms of money. Like you don't have access to kind of like like the, the cheaper good foods that you would in kind of in, in some other areas that are, are not poor areas. Right. Like, you have to pay for your transportation half the time every single day. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that you have to do. And then the drain on your time. If you actually want to get like some one of these programs or you want a little or looking for some assistance, then you have to kind of like find where you can take off from work. Right. And spend several days of learning how to go through this paperwork, meeting with kind of government offices and all this other kinds of stuff. What this does is basically say, no, no, we're just going to give you this baseline.
0: Well, it's what they're doing. They're they're trusting people. Right. Exactly. We're saying like, I just we need more money. And they're and they're trusting people to, to, to know what to do with it. Right? Which a lot of times that's that's what happens. And I had mentioned before, you know, that there's other like within the uh, Magnolia Mothers Trust, they've expanded and they're offering all of these different type of resources. But that's because that there's such a lack of, of that in like say the public education system <laughs> down in Mississippi. I and mean, that's exactly. something we could get into on a whole nother level. Um, Mississippi, you know, re- ranks pretty far down there. I think it's one of the I think it's I think it's like either 50
1: <laughs> or, 50th or, 49 49. or
0: 48. It's right. It's right there. Their, their infrastructure is just terrible. It really is. It's
1: incredible. And so like to the end of the seed thing, and I want to, I want to get now, I want to kind of turn to, uh, the Mag- Magnolia mother's trust. I know that you're kind of your bread and butter <laughs> on this one, right. Cause I, it's, and it's really fascinating. And is, um, but you know, looking at this and so one of the other, some of the other key findings they found right from the seed, uh, from the seed study, um, was that one obviously reduced income volatility, right, Um, that it enabled recipients to find full time employment, which we've already talked about. We found out that recipients of guaranteed income were healthier. They showed less sign of depression, anxiety and enhanced well-being. And it alleviated their financial um, scarcity, creating new opportunities for self-determination choice and goal setting and risk taking. Things like people starting their own businesses, right? People kind of like caring for other roles in the family so the whole family becomes healthier, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It was really fascinating to see not just the kind of the like, you know, the financial bottom line that you could kind of like easily determine on a spreadsheet, but looking at the study of, of the whole person right? And say, what happens when you trust people with, um, with money? What do they do? Do they just sit on their couch and kind of eat Cheetos? Well, it turns out no. It turns out they do those things that they were prevented from doing because of the way that we deal with poverty in this country. So let's turn. I mean, talking about like that whole person in this kind of approach, let's turn to the um, Magnolia's Mother's Trust, because I know you've done a lot of work on this. And so just kind of walk us through the program. Give us an intro to it. And then what got you focused on this? What are you interested in and some of the findings of that?
0: um well i first i I mean to be perfectly honest i first i started doing research on this the other year um it was for a college class it was Mm -hmm. for um a a women's history class um and i was i was trying to look for a different focus um and i was i was researching the ubi stuff was kind of like all over the news and, and everything um but i came across this this program and i really thought it was interesting because it's a it's a targeted ubi program so it's not So I shouldn't even call it a UBI, it's not a universal basic income, it is a targeted supplemental income program, but for a very particular reason. So um, this was started by the Springboard to Opportunities, uh, which is kind of, it's like um, an umbrella organization, um, which is basically uh, uh, all about the empowerment of the people, right? Um, and there's a whole bunch of different programs underneath of it. And it's all about uplifting communities, uplifting people, uh, fighting combat or uh, combating poverty. Um, and one of them is the Magnolia's Mother's Trust. Uh, so this program was headed by Dr. Naisha, Aisha Nye right? She's an amazing woman. Um, if anybody's interested, you should definitely go and check her out. Um, but she she's been she's been such an inspiring and motivating force for this program so this is targeted towards uh african-american mothers single mothers in jackson mississippi right so if you are not that you cannot apply for this program and the idea is to sort of it's to it's to kind of it's to sort of help level this playing field right because unfortunately african-american single mothers in the deep south are one of the most or the most vulnerable population right in the United States. They have been largely left out of policies, you know, I did this whole paper on basically how you know African American women have been oppressed, how they've been repressed, how they've been left out of our historical narrative, out of mass movements. Um, you know, they're not talked about during the civil rights movement as much. You know, they're not talked about during women's rights as much. And there are these huge movements that went on, say, like in the 1970s with the welfare movement. Um, and you've got people like Johnny Tillman, you know, and Fannie Lou Hammer. And and I think that, like, I didn't know any of that stuff, right, before I took this, this woman's history class. And I was so enraptured with the idea that there was this, this organization that was just giving money to these people because we've all been taught otherwise that, like, that's not a good idea to do, right? So... It started well, in response
1: and, to that. You know, when people say this, when they you know responds to this idea that, uh, you know, uh, and I've heard I, I wish I could tell you who, who I heard say this it might have been this uh, Rutger Bregman is the, the, the number um, the number one cause of poverty is lack of money. Oh, <laughs> right? right. I know. You know it's it, like... is. it
0: is. When... Anyway, sorry <laughs> to interrupt you. <laughs> and, and one of the other one of the other uh, one of the other factors that really drew me to this program um, was that. It, it definitely, it's, it's a, it's a tool to fight racial discrimination. It's also a tool to fight, um, racial and gendered stereotyping that surrounds welfare, right? In general so, and welfare recipients, especially within, uh, you know, black American communities, brown American communities. Um, and people, cause you know, you have these stereotypes that people are, are lazy, right? Or that you've got that, Oh, my gosh. And I I hate it. That what is it? 1980s Reagan's welfare queen, like this whole nasty, nasty stereotype. Um, And it also provided dignity. Right. Because when you go on to state assistance, especially in places like Mississippi, they're very strict with requirements. You know you can get kicked out because your kid did something wrong like you could get kicked out of your housing assistant right or you could lose your benefits because you got a new job and now you're making you know a couple dollars more (laughs) which isn't really going to impact your yearly income but it's enough for them to be like oh well you don't need our help anymore right and it combats this narrative that that people that people don't deserve Right, and it's this whole like deserving, deservingness. Um, so with the, Magno- with the Magnolia's Mother's Trust, they started out in 2018 uh, with, I think it was only 20. I do believe it was about only 20 people, 20 women that had started it. Um, and they're in their third year now. So it has been very successful. These women receive um, $1,000, no strings attached. Um, and then if I'll, I'll uh, have to pull up some of this data here. But I recently reviewed the 2001 uh, year in review um, report that they had put out. So as of right now, they have, well, for Springboard to Opportunities, they have a total of 4,930 people who are um, participants underneath this program. And for Magnolia's Mother's Trust, uh, it says here that in the second cohort, it says it included 110 mothers over the course of 12 months. Like I said, the first the first round of this was only like I think 20. So it wasn't a whole lot, right? Because this is all private funding and it was definitely an experiment. I mean, but the but the results were were completely I think a lot of people were surprised, right? So let me pull this up. <sighs> so so you had mentioned a report right that had got put out um by the creators by the of this program so you have aisha Nayandoro, you have rachel black and alita Sprague, mm-hmm. and they wrote this report about um addressing the root causes of poverty in mississippi and the need for this supplemental income program um and you know so paired with you know the state of mississippi's ultra conservative legislating body Um, Black women were being kept in a cycle of poverty and being punished for it, Um, especially within the anti-poverty programs, right, which are supposed to help, but they're not. And, you know, within these programs, there's a deeply entrenched belief that poverty is solely a consequence of individual choices, right? And it's not that. It's poverty or it's policy choices. And, you know, the Magnolia's Mother's Trust basically allows these women to kind of, like, circumvent some of these restrictions, right, by giving them that $1,000 a month. Um, they can afford that child care, so maybe they don't need the state assistance for that, right? Um, or, you know, they're able to go back to college. I know one woman had said she was able to pay for her childcare, go back to classes and get her degree, right? Which we all know, you know, raises her, her, her chances of getting a higher paid job, right? And it raised her mental health. It raised the mental health status of her and her family. Um, another woman was able to stay at home and care for her elderly mother who was very sick. I mean, these are, these are, these are programs that, like, you don't, these are things that happen to everyday people, and a lot of people are stuck being like, I I don't know what to do, and they get stuck in a cycle of poverty, right, because they apply for assistance, and then the second they, like, so what if they get laid off of their job? Well, then they get kicked off of assistance because they're not working, right like it, it's just this whole and none of, a lot of it doesn't make sense like a and, lot it,
1: of, and and it said how is it that you go going to go apply for jobs like right? spend your time looking for and applying for jobs when yeah. when you're gonna have to pay for childcare, and you don't have the money to pay for your childcare because you don't have a job right i mean that that's the, that's how how insane these policies are as they exist now
0: well it is and then basically these women are told well that's your fault right exactly. like that's your fault it doesn't matter that you know the state has like no access to you know it doesn't provide a whole lot for for people it doesn't provide they don't provide adequate education they don't have adequate healthcare systems you know um so yeah uh and and i think what was also interesting is that you know welfare the whole this whole idea of like welfare and, and UBI, like it's not new, right? Like this whole idea that we need to empower our most vulnerable women, especially of color in this country. You know, I mean, like I said, Johnny Tillman, she, she advocated for this back in the 1970s, right? Um, and she was featured in Mrs. Magazine. She was basically, you know, talking about, like, I'm, I'm still a woman, right? Like, I'm still, I still matter. You know, but nobody, the, the government doesn't think that I matter, right? And she says here, and this is a very famous line. And She goes, in this country, uh, or she says she identified that being uh, black, poor, overweight, and female, uh, you know, and if, if you're any one of those things, you count less than a human being. And I think that that really still applies today. Because these stereotypes from the 1970s, they're still around here. Katie. I don't know if you, I don't know if you recall when I had done... When I had dropped in on andy meehan's one uh <laughs> one meeting with um their candidate, he had talked about uh, the political candidate he had talked about cutting cutting costs right cutting costs at the state level um and basically what he was alluding to was was cutting the cost of social programs that they felt were like hemorrhaging money right and so that's code for for basically stating you know um uh, we're going to get rid of all these social programs because we don't need that. And that's what happened. And that's what Johnny Tillman and women like her were fighting for. And that's yes. what people like Dr. Aisha Nandoro are, are stating with these programs and especially in the deep South, right? Like these are women who have just been basically thrown to the wayside and, and society is like, we don't, we don't care. You know, we well, don't like care. We're, we're not going to give you money. We're going to keep you, sub- we're going to subject you to this cycle of poverty. And there's so much that goes into this, right? So, like, in, in the essay that I had written, I talked about all different types of, of oppression, um, economic oppression, right? Like, even simple things that go down to the tax code, which I am not skilled enough to mm-hmm. <laughs> dissect here, um, but there's all these little things, and it's all a bigger part of the systemic racism, right? And it affects everybody. Or it affects these these women because these people, like, there's no reason why these women aren't part of the workforce. Or they're not part of society, right? We have so much to gain from it, and and this is about community building because it's not just helping these particular women. This is helping their children. This is helping their families. This is helping all of all of their fil- like their communities around them. Um. So if you want, I can read off a little, a few statistics too. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So it says here that, uh, so for 2021, right, the ability of mothers that had participated in the program, um, the ability of, of mothers to pay their bills on time increased from 27 to 83%. That's a huge, huge jump up that they're able to pay that. Whether they're using the money to pay for their bills now and then they can put stuff in savings or whether they're able to go get a better job, <laughs> you know. Um, and it says here too that some of this uh, it says that the percentage of mothers who were able to save for emergencies increased from forty to eighty-eight percent. Um, and then here's and, and the biggest one that got me right is that because nobody wants to see people go hungry, is that uh, mothers reported an increase from sixty-four percent to eighty-one percent in their ability to have enough money for food. I mean, that's just it right there. We have people living in this country, one of the wealthiest nations, one of the wealthiest countries in the entire world, the entire world, and we have people struggling to put food on their table. Like, that doesn't make any sense, but that's the capitalist society that we live in, right?
1: One hundred percent, and I think that you know this goes right back to you know, I'm reminded once again of, of and I say this on the show quite a quite a lot lately, the, uh, the Heather McGee's book, like the Some of us, where she's kind of tracked some of the ways that these these systems work and at the say the brutality of you know you have American capitalism kind of coupled with American white supremacy right and that kind of history, which is of course, as an aside, why it's all that much more important right um to be able to interrogate these things in our educational system right i mean yeah. to be this as part of what how we're thinking about this stuff and you know i'm reminded is that one of the things that i find so fascinating um and so encouraging about these programs this one in particular because you have the the kind of data and it's a significant and this is the other thing too it's a significant number and it's ongoing and it's not just like say 500 it's like, you know you got a you got a nice payment right Um, For here, which allows a whole bunch of other things and the other part of this. Right. And I always remember I I, these debates between like the free market versus the state. They don't really that doesn't really, I think, really capture the way that both the state and the free market work together. Right. To to kind of perpetuate a system of oppression and exploitation in the way they do. Like I and, that, and now I think that's growing up as, you know, a white kid. Right. But, you know, there's a time where my 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 sister is mentally handicapped because of medical malpractice, which I've talked about on the show before. The um, my you know, my parents got divorced when I was about five years old and that immediately cast us in poverty. Right. Because like my mom couldn't work. Because my sister was was handicapped and, you know, mm-hmm. because after this stuff, suddenly we're kind of thrown into chaos, right? So we had to rely upon things like food stamps, right? And kind of and, – and all this assistance. And we lived like that for a while. And as – and again, for us, we were lucky because when my mom eventually got remarried, we were slowly able to kind of dig ourselves out of poverty. So by the time I was probably 13 or 14, they both had – my stepfather and my mom had teaching positions so that they could actually – you know, start to pay off all the kind of the, the, the debt. We took them years to do that though. But the point being is that one of the worst parts of that experience, right? Other than like powdered milk, which I will, uh. I could still taste <laughs> it when I say it, okay? Yeah. Um, other than that, and wondering if we're going to have enough money for or what kind of food we're going to have or having neighbors come by and drop us off. They were because they were also like, you know, picking up extra spare food and cheese food down at the kind of um, distribution center and handing us their extras. So we had something for that week that the worst part about it is that in order to kind of qualify for all assistance, you have to basically open up your lives to like the state. Right. And you have people come into your home. Right. Or you have to go to these offices and you could see it on the, the half the time. The assumptions are they're trying to figure out if you are deserving or not. Exactly. Right? And we had the benefit of at least being white. <laughs> right. And still, I could t- I can, the the shame of those experiences is so deep. Right. About the things that they would say and ask of my mom, the assumptions they would make about why she's poor were yeah. were pretty remarkable. You add on that the history of white supremacy in this country and the way that that gets folded into these social programs. And what you mentioned before about the, say, the welfare queen, queen trope by Reagan, of course, he, that, he was building on a long history of kind of, of, of white supremacy with that. But imagine that, like, you basically being freed up from that camera lens, always on your back trying to determine whether or not you are deserving and worthy of, of being able to eat. yeah. Here you've got this program, which takes that off the table, right? It says, this is unconditional, (laughs) right? You don't have to kind of prove like that, you know, you are the moral upstanding citizen that goes to church every week. No, right? This is, you got to be a mother. Yes, there's conditions like that, but other programs are a little bit different and you can meet your basic needs, improve your mental health, Right. And you're not under the constant surveillance. Right. That constant reinforcement of white supremacy. And I I think that that, those things in this program in particular were really remarkable to see, especially when you get into some of the stories of the people there.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and especially in the in the deep south, too. Right. Like there's there's a history of, of strong. (laughs) racial uh, discrimination, you know, um, this, this economic oppression as well, which is something that I had, you know, touched upon a little bit uh, with it. Well, I mean, I, that was basically my whole essay. (laughs) Um, But it was it was one of these, these, like, contributing factors too, right for for the need for a program like this. Um, You know, according to the National Women's Law Center, in 2016, 21.4% uh, of all, you know, black women were living at or under the poverty line. Um, and that included one out of six children. You know, one out of six children are living in poverty in the United States. And out of that statistic, you have one out of every three are, are African American or of, of, you know, browner brown or black skin. Um... And then <laughs> for women too i mean the stakes are even higher i mean you've got 38.8 percent of black headed female black female-headed families you know that with children that were living in poverty um and like i said there was this 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 definitely alludes to a long history of this right so you know um there was an interview uh on npr where you know there was an article that talked about women of the welfare movement and that you know and then during the south in the south um state officials would actually go and like cut off assistance to them during cotton picking season time. Yeah, I mean like if <laughs> that's that's I don't even have any words for that. Like I if you want to talk about dignity not giving someone dignity. I I don't it, it's just terrible what these people have to um in, endure down there. You know, they have Uh, eligibility requirements, you've got, you know, restrictions on how much you can make, you would have restrictions. um, I know back in the 60s and 70s, women weren't allowed to, uh, you know, date or get married or have a relationship because it violated the stipulations of receiving welfare assistance. I mean, the government is like literally in their bedroom at that point, right? Like, (laughs) that's ridiculous. And there's no reason why you didn't see that happening to, to other portions of society. You didn't see that happening to, to, to white men. You didn't see this happening as much to white women. And then this stuff wasn't talked about. It's not discussed, right? So then you would have Reagan, who came in in the 80s, who who, who talked about the trope of the welfare queen, yet he's the one who was like, oh, we have to cut all of these social welfare programs, right, From from the civil rights movement because they're wasting money. (laughs) So then you create, you create, he created this mass populace of, of just communities in poverty.
1: Yeah. 100%. And I think, you know, what you, you, the example you gave about, you know, penalizing kind of women, right. Mm -hmm. Um, If, you know, uh, especially when it comes to, well, I I remember it like this, right. Is uh, I I had friends actually like this. I remember in high school having these conversations with someone is like, that um, they had their like their mother. Right. They were on their own welfare. They're African-American. Their mother. Um, they were lived kind of single family. Right. But their mother had been in a, in a kind of a long term relationship with someone for a long time. They considered this person you their, know, their, their pop. Right. Mm-hmm. But because they were not married, he couldn't live with them. Yep. Right. Because if you were if you found out, right, if, it, if the way that the, the codes worked, right, if that if if that kind of African-American woman in particular, right, was sitting there and would have someone in the house, a male living in the house when they were unmarried, then they would get their benefits taken away. Yeah. And that just is kind of like this is the administration, like the, the administratizing or whatever of what you had during slavery and Jim Crow. I mean, when you, we had the kind of destruction of families there. This was kind of rolled in. I remember, like, Michelle Alexander's work, right, on this, when the new Jim Crow, where she tracks yeah. the way that systems of white supremacy and the slaveocracy in American capitalism have gotten rolled into different forms to produce the same results. Um, and this is just a perfect example of this. And, you know, and again, once again, this program is a way to just kind of, like, try to cut the, the rug out or pull the rug out from underneath that kind of dynamic.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, and like I said, these practices, like, so, you know, this is, this happens in a lot of different places, right? Like, this isn't just in the Deep South, but in the Deep South, in these, and I'm going to say in these former Confederate states and these these states that actively, you know, fought for segregation and Jim Crow and all this, like, I mean, these things are still happening, right? These types of, of repressions, um, just this all up in your business, right? Like, all the time sort of thing but like they even say like so uh, uh uh springboard to opportunities you know the the organization who's overtop the uh, mother the magnolia mothers trust you know found out they identified by talking to people right so they went out the, the people who worked for them they went out and said you know ask these families what do you need like what do you need most and cash right cash assistance was the number one thing and i had found out that you know at least in mississippi um because that was well maybe not because but this being that it was one of the things that people needed most it was it was also one of the uh programs that was being systematically eroded right by the Mississippi legislation um since about 1996 which then you have this trend this this rising number of families in poverty right in deep poverty um, yeah. so it rose from, uh, 1.9 million in the year 2000 to 2.9 million in 2017. So, and when they, so when they say poverty is a policy choice, this is, this is this like right here. Like that's what that means.
1: 100%. I mean, that's, I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know how clear, more clear it could be, right?
0: <laughs> exactly. 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 <laughs> um, so yeah so and then i want to i want to say too so this program was going on through all during the coronavirus um which which actually uh was an incredible blessing for for a lot of people who were able to um it says you know the program was able to be a a major lifeline to a lot of these women um and they were able to provide themselves with basic necessities a lot of people lost their jobs during the pandemic and people who were right on that line living paycheck paycheck to paycheck may not have money in savings, right? Because if you're living paycheck to paycheck, there is no money for savings, right? Like you're, you're definitely, you're trying to calculate which bill needs to be paid, you know, in a week or so. <laughs> and you have to diversify your money like that. Um, and then during COVID, as we all know, it just exasperated all of these problems, right? Any type of structural injustice was exasperated or exasper. Oh, I can't talk this morning. You know what I'm trying
1: to say. I got you. <laughs> Exacerbated. Thank you. I'm worried what would happen if I tried that word right now. I'll tell you. I know. That. I know. It's <laughs> been kind of week. So, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is just, just great stuff. Well, is there any other kind of takeaways that, that you'd want to kind of like talk about um, here? I don't want to kind of like push this beyond it before here because I just find this No, this I don't I don't want to either.
0: I understand. I wish I could go over so much more. Like, I, I mean, because like I said, I did an entire essay on this. There's so many factors right like there's so many reasons about why this is a good idea but also to um you know so that like i said the major the major difference between this uh supplemental income program um the magnolia's mother's trust it is targeted right seed is also a targeted basic Mm -hmm. income program um so the university the university the (laughs) university One of those days. Universal. (laughs) The universal aspect of the program. Um, And that's what, so you have some people who are on the very far left, right? And they are advocating. um, There's organizations that do advocate that universal basic income means universal, that it doesn't matter how much you make, right? Everybody should be able to get that. And that's basically where, like, if you look at what we got, what a lot of people were receiving was with the child tax credit payments this past year, the stimulus payments. That's essentially what it is. It doesn't matter what you make, right? It's all about just here it is, this is what you get, and here's your here's your baseline. So that way everybody is basically beginning on an equal footing. Could you imagine at 18 Right. people – Turning eighteen, start getting this like right out the bat. You're you're literally starting everybody off, not exactly on the same footing, but everybody is having more. The, I don't know how to say it. It's just it's. You have a
1: baseline of security, right? You, 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 you do, from. right?
0: You do because we live in a society, like I said, that is incredibly consumer driven. It's money driven. It. It. You have to have an education, right? Like you. I don't care if you go to college or not, you have to have some sort of education, trade school, you know what I mean? And that's that's what this these type of programs are doing. They're just they're allowing people to take advantage of opportunities that so many of us take advantage of, right? The being able to go to college, being able to go to the grocery store without and buy food, right? Without being stigmatized. Like stuff like that. These are simple things and I think everybody needs to take a step back and look at how other people live because that's really important. And not everybody does have enough money. Not every time's like people aren't able to leave, right? Like a lot of the women who participate right, exactly. in, in, in the program in Mississippi, they're not able to just up and leave, right? Like they're stuck. They're in this position. Like this is their community.
1: Right. And you see, you know, and this was, a, you know, people were remarking on this, too, as well, is that the way that a lot of these these social programs work and things like this, especially if they're dependent upon you having like you being married or something like this. Right. Is that, you know, you saw what that means also in terms of of abuse. Right.
0: Well, it is. is. That... And even to like further stigmatize it, you have you have some places where they, they require drug testing. Right. I mean, so like, and that even, so then there you go. You have another discrimination against people who may have an addiction problem, right? Like in a country which is suffering a massive, ep, like opioid <laughs> epidemic. Exactly. I, I just, and so like I said, the the need for something different, because these these social, the social welfare programs in, in our country, they're, they, they're okay, right? But they're not they're not what they need to be. And and if you were to allow people to have these programs with dignity, right? Without being all up in your business, without assuming that you're lazy right off the bat, or that there's something inherently wrong with you, which is another, you know, major stereotype, is that if you're poor, that it's somehow this like inborn trait, right? And that goes to a whole nother level of like, you know, 100%. uh discrimination
1: 100 <laughs> percent. and like so i wanted two things here so one i want to you know for those folks who are looking at this stuff if you want to have so learn some more information i'll have some links to the show notes to the two um two programs we talked about today also have some links to the uh center for guaranteed income research um i'm going to drop that right now into the chat um if you're kind of more interested about want to see some of the research in the background because they're doing some really cool work and this is not Um, Just something that is on the margins of some couple random things. So we mentioned, you know, just just the Center for Guaranteed Income and Research, the ones that they're working on right now. You have again, we mentioned the Stockton uh, example. Stockton, California, has this program going. New Orleans, uh, New Orleans uh, has one. It's called the the 4.0 Rooted Schools Youth Cash Transfer Pilot. You've got another one in St. Paul, Minnesota, called the People's Prosperity Guaranteed Income um, Pilot. You've got another one in Richmond, Virginia. You've got another program that is happening in Columbia, South Carolina. You've got another program that is happening in Los Angeles, California, and a bunch of others too as well Mm -hmm. So, Check out what they're doing. You can see this is really, really fascinating. The other aspect of this that I, I want people just to know is like, this is actually something that is not new. This has been around for quite some time. And there was uh, this came up when when UBI was getting discussed a little bit back in, say, you know, 2016, 2015, when it's really started kind of getting some traction in public media. Um, There was a great article in um, Dissent magazine called The False Promise of Universal Basic Income. The title is a little bit misleading because they're not saying that UBI is bad. This would be clear. It's uh, they're trying to kind of like make us have a distinction between what we see happening on the libertarian like the silicon valley people that want to see this as like libertarian future cure-all to everything versus what is uh the policies that are more left-leaning but anyways um there was a a, in the 1970s there was a a bunch of programs um that were looking exactly this and there's this one in particular the largest in north america took place in dauphin um, canada this is from the article in the 1970s um Um, Dauphin Canada in the 1970s was an unexpected success across the board when people were guaranteed an income above the poverty line, around $19,000 a year for a family of four, They stayed in school longer and spent more time with their families while hospitalizations, domestic violence, and mental health complaints declined. In four experimental programs across the United States around the same time, meanwhile, people consistently work fewer paid hours and put most of their spare time into parenting, independent artistic pursuits, and education. It turns out that people aren't indolent when they aren't forced to work, though it wouldn't be, be such a terrible thing to say, but they just do the kind of work that they actually want. And a bunch of this research went, and a bunch of those research was just kind of like, they started these programs, they found tremendous success, and then it kind of disappeared, and why? Well, in this article, they make clear it's really, uh, in some cases, it, it's a political problem, not the, a programmatic problem. And one of the things I think was really interesting, they say the problem isn't that basic income doesn't sound good, it's that it sounds too good to be true. This, in fact, is one of the basic income's base, biggest political challenges, getting people to take it seriously. Politicians tend to be wary of endorsing such seemingly pie-in-the-sky ideas. A much-discussed referendum in Switzerland last summer, this is 2016, um, proposed a basic income a significantly higher baseline, but resulted in a, in a defeat, with 70% of the voters rejecting the plan. But none of the major national parties were back it because they were worried about the political implications. What I think we're at a really interesting moment right now, where you have like the Center for Guaranteed Income Research a Penn, and you've got a bunch of these programs that are now ongoing, Right? the ones that Amy has highlighted in particular today, we're talking about, we're being in a different different space. It's not a kind of an idea anymore. We actually have a growing body of research that is showing kind of the, the baseline success of this. And success not just at the level of getting people out of poverty, but also at improving their lives and their health across the board. I mean, that seems to be like a worthy pursuit, if you ask me.
0: <laughs> well, I think so, because it's, it's adding this entire population. You know, it has the potential to add a, a, a whole... Group of people, you know, to who are who are like living on like the edge of society sometimes, right? Because like when you're poor, like you can't participate in a lot of things, like even simple things like going to the movies, right, with your family, taking a long weekend vacation. You know what I mean? Um, that, that that's exclusionary. Like being poor <laughs> equates to exclusionary, um, you know, or equates to a, 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 a exclusion. And so often, you know, the the working poor, people living in deep poverty, you know, they get mixed. And what you were saying right there, this actually uh, 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 reminds me of of by Bi- what one of the things that Biden had said in his State of the Union address, right? And he talked about the middle class, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he talked about, you know, we don't need we don't need to build, we need to build our our our. Our country like out from the middle and he's talking about building out from building up again the middle class but like that's that's not that's not gonna work right because that's not addressing poverty issues right it's not it's definitely not um you know and basically you know there was an article in market watch uh, a while ago that talked about um, UBI and stuff like that and how that it might be even like undemocratic you know, and it basically was going off of the the viewpoint that people are just receiving handouts, right? And that's the type of mind frame that you need to switch up, right? Because it goes back to that deservingness. And it reminds me kind of like what Biden was saying about building out from the middle. Well, that just, to me, it reinforces that the people that are deserving of help exist only in that middle, right? What about those people down below? Exactly. So.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely check out more, and I do have to say too, I've reached out to the folks, um, kind of over at the um, the uh, Center for Guaranteed Income Research, and uh, we'll see if we can get some um, somebody from that center on the show um, to talk about this a little bit deeper and looking even more into some of the research. So I think this is one of these, you know, w- one of these things that I'm really interested in continuing to pursue um, is looking for people that are working on significant solutions along these kind of lines, right? Where we're thinking about um, the, the, you know. The 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 horizon that was given to us, for example, in the Green New Deal, when we're able to kind of imagine a different possibility and looking concretely at what this what, what this would actually mean. There's people already doing some amazing work on this stuff. So we're going to check that out. hmm. Yeah. So listen, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little about the Penridge School Board meeting this week. Uh, yes, they were back in session and. Uh, well, I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> so we'll talk about that on the flip side of this. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken here once again with Amy Connect. And while we've been talking to you about a little about UBI, guaranteed um, income um, our programs that are uh, all over the place, um, are springing up all over the place, I should say, uh, really fascinating stuff. Uh, we'll be back after this quick break, and we're going to talk about the Penbridge School Board meeting. And... Uh, the joys of it is uh, of being here in Bucks County. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, everybody, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, uh, creator and founder of Raging Chicken here once again with Amy Connect. Uh And uh, it's Penridge School District time, everybody. How about that? Yes, they had another school board this meeting. Uh, and Amy decided to, uh, you know, uh, spend the time with the Penridge School Board. <laughs> so why don't you take us through kind of what, what um, you saw? I mean, I was able to watch it, watch the recording of it afterwards. But um, kind of uh, how would you characterize what went down on Monday?
0: Uh it was definitely contentious um I so I have never been to a Penridge school board meeting obviously um but uh I went uh there was a lot of people who were talking um there was a lot of people there, and from what I gather, there isn't normally that many people even like during right now still at these meetings um mm-hmm. so um the room seemed like it was largely divided I wouldn't say like directly in half, but you definitely had an area where you had all of these anti-maskers, anti-DEI, just, you know, everybody was sitting. And then you had um, the uh, uh, another section where you had, uh, like, the King family, and they yep. were there, which is, which is also one of the reasons why I had went, too. Um, there was a call of action for, for community members to come and support them, um, so I thought it was important. Uh, so I went over to the meeting. I was accompanied with, uh, by Jamie Davis. She was a former school board candidate for up here in Palisades. Who rocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> we went. Um, we were... I had gotten there a little bit late. Um, so I had walked in on someone. He, they were speaking. Um, but basically, it was kind of a mix. There was a good amount of people that were speaking against what had happened at the previous meeting with that community.
1: Right. Um, if you, people want to, know, people are not one. familiar... Yeah. People are not familiar with that. Check out our show from last Friday. We kind of go through the um, kind of everything that kind of happened at that uh, community meeting. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, sorry. Yeah.
0: To so there was, I mean, there was basically like, and a lot of the stuff that I was hearing from, from people is, is a lot of the same stuff that you hear at a lot of board meetings right now. Right. Like at least in Bucks County, you know, you had somebody who was talking about how the the meeting last one or the previous meeting on that Wednesday uh, was totally inappropriate Um, you know, this person was like chastising the board on their behavior, but then jumped right into, you know, uh, advocating for the dissolution of the community committee. And then also that we were not a systemically racist country. (laughs) Um, so you had some of that, you had another person who was up there uh, kind of screaming and yelling about DEI, and they want the committee to investigate issues in the district, not DEI. There's like, you know, he was so disappointed. Um, and he said basically like that the community had major disdain for DEI, which isn't true because there was a whole group of people from the, you know, Penridge community who were there, <laughs> right. um, advocating, you know, for this because that was the whole purpose, right? That of establishing this community committee, right, was to investigate the need um, and to further, I guess, the inclusion of like DEI policies and stuff like that. I mean, that's my take or whatever of why this community committee was happening in the first place. But then to find out that they've been, you know, working on this for months and nothing has happened. Um, But I got to tell you, probably, I, I think the worst behavior came from Joan Cullen. Yes. At the school board meeting. I was I was rather appalled how how she reacted to people speaking. She wouldn't make eye contact with people. She wouldn't look at them. She was very just. I don't know. She's very cold. She's a very cold woman. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you find I mean, you For those of you who don't know, Joan Cullen is the is the, uh, the chair, the chair of the board of uh, chair of the um, school board. And, uh, you know, we've talked about her on the show before because she is, you know, she is really the the tip of the spear when it comes to the kind of the takeover that school board among kind of the extremists. And she is uh, she's remarkable in the way that she manages to one, keep herself kind of like a se- seemingly like reasonable and accommodating. Right. While being like. Like fomenting the worst among us, right? I mean, that's a, its a—it really is a skill. I mean, I have to say. And one of the things that you noticed at that at that meeting too is like, well, first of all, like kudos goes out to Adrian King, right, and the other folks that organized to get um, to get people out at the meeting. Um, it was phenomenal to see. Now, look, we should say people have been organizing to get people at the meeting for, a, for for a while, but this one was a really distinctive kind of a response to what had happened at the community meeting before. And by having people come out like that in kind of like in groups with a with an agenda, an idea about why you're there. I thought was came through was really powerful and that was really good to see. Um, but, you know, that didn't stop, the, you know, like the, the folks basically saying, look, we elected you to get a get rid of DEI and you haven't gotten rid of it yet. Right.
0: Well, and that's the that that's just it, too. And that was like I think somebody who I don't know if it was at the meeting or after the meeting, but they had brought up the whole fact of like Joan Cullen even being on that committee anyway. You know, yep. she was she's she's never hid the fact that she was anti anti. DEI and SEL. I don't even understand why she was even on that committee.
1: <laughs> well, it's because because to stop it, right? Precisely to to throw the wrench in the machine, and she's really really good at doing that. Like for example, what's what's crazy, what what she was she's always been extraordinarily good about doing is say, look, like we're not we're not trying to get rid of black authors. Look, we're proposing black authors. Right? There's black authors that we're saying we're excluded that should be put on, and of course the black authors that she's putting on there are like the most extreme right wing people you could imagine. Who happen to be black, right? Who are preaching anti-like DEI that racism is not like you know systemic and things like this, so she hides behind these kind of identities and thinks, Wait a minute, I don't know what you're talking about, and like it really gaslights everybody else. I mean, she's she's remarkable, and she yeah, wanted she- to be on that committee oh, after she wrong. killed the. De- I mean, think about this: people had worked on that DEI thing for several years. Right to come up with that curriculum, and it was ready to go after all this community work. And in one meeting, she was like, "Nope, we're gonna we're gonna get it done, and we're gonna ship it off to the side committee." And then she starts a side committee, and she does nothing but but stonewall and kind of undermine it every step of the way. I mean, it's incredible.
0: Yeah, definitely, and 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 even so, and then so one of the, so the biggest issue right was that uh, at this this community or yeah community committee. um, it, the other Wednesday was a woman uh, had come up to make a public comment, right? And she ends up attacking um, Dante King and his wife and their business and this, you know, a nonprofit that Adrian King runs. And, you know, linking it some, trying to link it somehow to like funding of DEI
1: <laughs> policy. Trying to make it like a practices. conspiracy to profit off of DEI. That's what oh they Oh my gosh, it, so. it
0: was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so silly and you couldn't hear all of this woman's speech at that meeting but here she got up on uh the last school board meeting and she read the same exact like commentary that she had and she was allowed to the same exact thing so she was again allowed by the board to attack you know, a family of Palisades and their business, which, you know, on things that didn't really have anything to do with the school, other than the fact that, you know, people were on boards or people were on committees, right? That's what it really comes down to.
1: Right. And then we should it. say that, that the, the woman who, who made that attack against, uh, against Dante King was her name is Kim Bedillion. And she is not just a kind of like a concerned mom or something like this. Kim Bedillion is the head of the Penridge uh, GOP, the Penridge Republican club. Right. So she and she is one of these, you know, one of these folks has been has been, you know, immersed in the kind of the right wing discourse around race, right wing discourse around school boards across the country. Well, so, and
0: her and her son, too, because he was there and he spoke as well. And then I found out that he doesn't even have children in the district, that he sends his kids to private school. And he was railing, railing about DEI initiatives in, in Penridge. I was I was astounded.
1: Yep, 100 <laughs> yep, percent. Um, you know, and I, and I think that, well, you know, in some ways I, I'm, it's actually was good to hear your take on this for, uh, you know, having not been to one of the, one of our board meetings, right. Just to kind of see firsthand, because I do think it's, it, it's the kind of thing that you just really, you need to see, right. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because oh,
1: yeah. the way that the dynamics work on that school board, it's, it's, it's remarkable.
0: Wait, well, it's not even the school board. I was, I was appalled at it's, it's a, some community members who were going up there and speaking. Yep. There was another woman, and she was blasting a uh, uh, Dante King about a shirt that he was wearing. As you know, he he wore a Malcolm X T-shirt during Black History Month, that's, and that's she unbelievable. Made this, Yeah, and she was, <laughs> and she was. I mean, this woman was vehemently upset at the podium she was she was like she was going on about how he was wearing this t-shirt and that malcolm x was anti-semitic and that how dante wearing that shirt was a direct attack on her as a person and i mean i was a little baffled right like about where it was going with that and to me it seems like that the, the these community members who were speaking up against this community committee um, we're really just trying to target the King family. I mean, for I mostly, know. right? Like it was, yeah. That's that's what I got. And then at one point, Adrian King gets up and she starts talking, and she's talking about the Anti Defamation League's "No Hate, No Home" or "No Place for Hate," yep. right? So, the Anti Defamation League is basically an organization that was started to prevent hate speech anti-semitism like all all of this and adrian king gets up and she's just like nobody wants hate i don't want hate and she asked people to stand and the woman who was going on and on and on about the attack of of dar you know yelling about dante wearing a malcolm x t-shirt i mean she doesn't stand up and here this is the no place for hate is an organization put on by, by by a Jewish organization. Like, I, I just, my mind was just kind of in circles thinking about some of these things because, like, just the hatred. I, I was really taken aback. We've had some very contentious meetings at Palisades, mm-hmm. but I, I was just... I was a little taken aback, like I said, I must admit. And I've never been to um, a board meeting over there. But if this is what's been going on for years, I I am truly sorry.
1: (laughs) It's it's remarkable. Well, look, I mean, it's like, you know, one of the things that, Here's the. There's a few ironies that come in here, which of course, you know, hypocrisy. Like on the on the right, hypocrisy is just kind of what you eat for breakfast, right? I mean, it's like so it doesn't it doesn't register as something like that they care about, right? They have no shame when it comes to this stuff. So like like number one is that you talk about the Malcolm X shirt, right? You know, Like here here's like you know the hypocrisy, right? The hypocrisy is like. Like the, the claim is, is that there's all these like people that are, 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 are being oppressed because other people, right. Feel that they don't want their feelings hurt. Right. Cause there's all these snowflakes that are out there and like, so that they can't handle just kind of like, you know, daily discourse, you know, they got to learn to toughen up. But when it comes to them, right. Somebody wears a Malcolm X t-shirt and suddenly like like it, the world is assaulting them, right? You're talking about like like taking away all their income and throwing them in prison because they're, they're so thin-skinned, it's unbelievable, right? Well, so, and she
0: wasn't even just talking about that. I mean, she completely right. came out and she stated very like anti-Muslim, anti-Islam statements as well. I exactly. mean, just the sheer fact that she was allowed to go up there and blast the nation of Islam like that, I just really felt that wasn't appropriate at a school board meeting. This had nothing to do with the school board. This had nothing to do with the district. And and the board allows this type of rhetoric because it's free speech. Because we
1: allow the pub we allow the public. We don't silence the public, Amy. We we have people here because you know they get to express their opinions because it's free speech. This is America, after all, right? It's free speech
0: (laughs) until a gentleman held up a sign that was a very large sign that spelled out the definition of what racism was, and he was told to signs weren't allowed. right? Right? Signs weren't allowed, and then of course you have school security. Uh, or, I guess the police I'm a school cops. You guys have cops in your schools. We they, have to now, yeah, um, well, I mean, and here you have this cop walking over to like stand next to this 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 uh you know, black gentleman in the crowd holding up this this sign that talks about racism. and it, I, I'm just like sitting there and I'm like, he's being, oh man, oh man, like I was just waiting for it, like, what is the security cop gonna do? Like why is he, like what, he has a sign. He's standing there. He's standing up and he's holding a sign. What kind of threat is that? You tell me.
1: Right. Well, it breaks the rules, right? That's what Joan uh-huh. called. But I'm sorry, sir. Um, signs are not allowed here. It's very clear in the bylaws. That is one of the rules. So it's like, you can come up and you could say the most hateful things you possibly want, but if you hold up a sign with a definition of racism on it, then you are excluded, right? I mean, this is the yeah. way that policy works, right? In order to keep this going.
0: Yeah. And,
1: you, you know, I think, yeah, and, and Ross just and said, yes, that not only are there police there, but they're police with guns, right? So, I don't know how
0: safe that makes everybody feel, but I'm certainly not feeling quite right. that great about that. Well,
1: um, right. And <laughs> if you look at the background, right, you know again, it, this is th- this is the reason why we focus in on so much of this stuff on the show, right? While Cyril Mickeleco and his column has been drawing attention to the extremism that's happening in the school boards, that's the why that as in the in the coming months that we're going to be doing even more at Raging Chicken, right, to make sure that we are kind of be um, starting to turn the tide of what's happening in our school boards. So just I believe it was yesterday um, the ADL, who you mentioned, the Anti-Defamation League, um, just released its new um, kind of report. Um, it's kind of looking at, they do an annual report that's looking at kind of um, kind of white supremacist incidents, right? And uh, you'll love to hear this, that in 2021, because that they're looking at the past year, hateful propaganda appeared in every state except Hawaii, with the highest levels of activity being reported in Pennsylvania.
0: Oh, I'm not surprised.
1: Number one. Pennsylvania beat out Virginia, Texas, Massachusetts, Washington state, um, Maryland and New York state for the number one spot. So that was 400 and 473 incidents of kind of white supremacist activity. Right. And so th- that includes a range. I included a link in today's, uh, in the, um, the chat for today. So if people want to check that out, um, it's extraordinarily kind of, I think important. You can see this. And one of the key, one of the most prominent um, um purveyors of those white white supremacist um, incidents here uh, was Patriot Front, right? Was that kind of um, quasi-militia group, right, that Cyril has been highlighting in his column, right? And they're kind of like the number one, right? So uh, that stuff is making its way. and You remember, they were organizing, they were trying to kind of perform this picnic, right? Supposedly it was supposed to be a community event outside of a school board meeting. Um, pay, and then they got exposed. Cyril was helped like helped expose that it. No, it was actually this militia group that was doing this and they eventually canceled the event. But, and these are the folks who are now, we think, right. Um, also part of trying to track down, kind of looking for instances of teachers, right. And individuals who are kind of like talking about race in school mm. so that they can go and attack them and they control them online.
0: Yeah. I don't know how you're going to teach American history without talking about race. I, I, I... <laughs>
1: You just go back back talking about, you know, dead white men. I guess,
0: I guess, I guess. I mean, and there wasn't even, so there was, there was all these elements, right. too. like, it wasn't even just about the King family. Like people were taking the opportunity to go up and talk about how, you know, DEI isn't good for kids um, because kids should be free of stressors that affect adults. Well, you know, uh, okay. Yeah, they should be right. But it doesn't always work like that,
1: unfortunately.
0: Um, And that, this woman was very, like, very anti-LGBTQ. I mean, she even called the AIDS epidemic, a f- like, some sort of, like, fashion statement or something along those that, lines. I was yeah, so when appalled. That, I was like, holy I, when shit. I heard
1: that, too, as well. I couldn't believe it. When, you know, when it was popular to have these, yeah. I mean, she, yes. Yeah, was I was like, I'll,
0: yeah, I, I mean, so, like I said, like, the amount of, like, just arrogance and, and, and hateful rhetoric coming from these people who obviously don't give a flying shit about anything whatsoever, Mm -hmm. other than their own little group of, of their little bubble, I guess. Right. I mean, and then you had a student, you had this, this Indian American, uh, uh, I guess she was a student and she was up there. I mean, how brave of her. And she was up there talking and, you know, representing a a small group of people, right? Like up there talking. And then you've got these other people who are, who are railing off about, you know, the nation of Islam. And, and I mean, they're not making people feel very welcome at this school and they're saying, oh, but that's not true. But everything that these – some of these – now, this isn't everybody, but a lot of these people who are speaking against um, diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, are are very, like, we're not against, you know, inclusion, but we can't have this, right? Or we can't have that, or you can't do this, or, you know, we can't talk about having gender-neutral bathroom in the school, God forbid, or I don't know, just, like, anything like that. It's just – it's (laughs) –
1: yeah no absolutely and you know that woman who spoke i believe it was annika verma who's actually been uh she has uh she's been an active member in the bucks county anti-racism coalition um and i I believe she's the one who spoke at that meeting too as well who's also working with an anti-racist group at penridge um and you know and she's been phenomenal There was also the student who came up um a trans student came up Mm -hmm. and talked about you know about the attacks that they feel on a, a daily basis and how important it is to have you know some of these initiatives that are kind of geared towards making school a place where kind of learning can be there for everyone um they're just uh you know they're incredible and, and yes, I think, and courageous, right. Cause they're putting themselves out there, but you know, again, let's take their lead, right. Let's take the lead of folks like, you know, Adrian King, let's take the lead of like, you know, of Annika and, uh, and, and be there, be there and continue to be there and continue to spotlight what's going on because this is just, you know, it's got to stop.
0: It does. And and one of the most alert, so it definitely does. And one of the other issues um, of that night, like one of the big ones, which I was a little surprised actually um, I haven't noticed this much in our school, But then again, like our school district is a lot smaller um, than our surrounding neighbors. But there was a whole bunch of uh, Mr. Bedillion, (laughs) uh, I guess Kim Bedillion's son, he, he goes up and he was talking about who to blame, right, for the current Penridge issues, the problems. And apparently TikTok is all to blame. That's it. It's just everything needs to be blamed on TikTok. We have to pull TikTok away from our children um but he then he says basically too that like you know um there's no god in school so of course there's issues right so then you had another person come up talking about you know the the problem about the district using that revivals who is it the revivals baptist church it's a church in the area um who has tutoring services and they offer them for free which is fabulous right very cool it is the only tutoring service that the district, I guess, marks as a resource that's free. But they fail to men like they don't they fail to mention that if you get like they don't teach evolution. So if you're being tutored in science, you're being taught creationism and that's it. And that's not what's being taught within the actual district. <laughs> right. So people have an issue with this and the fact that it's misleading. You know, they're just like, what's with this? This is the only free one and there's a catch, right? There's there's like a catch with it. And then you have other people going up and they're like, well, there's nothing wrong with this. And of course we should have God in our school, right? There's no such thing as secularism. Um, and that in in the, what is it, in the Constitution, you know, somebody read that there was no... Explicit separation of church and state, and blah 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 blah, and uh, you know all of that kind of stuff. But I was a little surprised at the religious tone that was. Oh yeah, it's all there. I, I was like, because we've not had religion in school for a very long time, and there are so many plenty of options, right, for people who want religious education for their children. You have Christian schools and Catholic schools and private schools, and you have all these different types of schools. I don't understand why the push is there. I mean, like I said, I, I, was, I was a little overwhelmed by what I was hearing from people because I just, I haven't heard these arguments so strongly, Right. You know, um, at least from so many different people too, and, and that was really alarming. I mean, you know, Palisades shares a tech school with Penridge, so it's it's one it's a bigger community, right? It's not just one school. It's not just Penridge or Palisades or Central Box right. or Quaker Town, right? We are all part of this interconnected, you know, school system. So I think that's really important, and I really do think that if you can do it, like for anybody who's listening, if you can make board meetings at Penridge, if you can make board readings at Palisades or, or, I mean, Central Box. I mean, people should go. You need to check out and see what's going on.
1: And I think that in addition to that, right, I echo 100% what you just said, right? I mean, yes, absolutely. And I think in addition to this, we're going to look, we're going to have to find out ways, we're going to have to start looking for ways which we can help support um, you know, continue ongoing organizing in our community, right? Because I think this is, I mean, look, it took a long time for us to get here, right? Where the extremists have kind of are, you know, are occupying the, uh, you know, basically the house, <laughs> right? And so it's going to take some kind of consistent organizing moving forward. And we're going to have to find looking for ways to make sure that we have support mechanisms for this, for funding mechanisms for this to do the kind of ongoing canvassing. I've been doing a bunch of uh, reading lately about um, deep organizing or deep canvassing, which they're talking about, you know, what happens not just for the elections, but when you're actually doing canvassing and kind of that organizing that door to door, talking with community members, having communities events as ongoing as a way to kind of strengthen and build these coalitions deep. But the key is, is that, you know, um, you know, a system of kind of, you know, volunteers putting this stuff together with no support can only go so far. Right. And I know that, you know, in the Bucks County Democratic Party has begun to start paying attention to this a little bit, um, but we're going to need to find other ways that we're going to making sure that we got support for these, um, you know, for these organizing efforts, because, uh, you know, (laughs) we got our job cut out for us, folks so we'll be looking forward to that and i can tell you and I'll, i will say this and then uh i do have uh some plans in the works uh, to try to find a way that we can make raging chicken contribute even more to this um but more about that when i you know when i can kind of cross my t's and dot my i's so to speak <laughs> 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 uh crazy well anything else for the good of the order today amy
0: oh man i don't i don't think so there's so much <laughs> going on like i everywhere. know
1: I know, uh, you know, and I purposely, you know, I know that we talked before about kind of catching up on news in Ukraine and stuff like that, which is just horrific. And I and, uh, you know, I mean, look, I have to say also um, there's uh, uh, Dina Lagerman uh, put a tweet out there, which I think it was like following on either Adrian or might even been following on. Oh. Um, uh, I, uh, anyways, uh, I saw a tweet from her this morning, and uh, this is just one other thing. People are looking for ways that they can help support um, people in Ukraine. Um, there was this really um, it might even Jamie Davis might have even said it, but um, that that you can actually go on um, Airbnb. Oh, right? that
0: was Jamie. Yeah, Jamie it was yeah, Jamie. Yep. Okay, it was
1: Jamie. So looking for a- Airbnb and looking for people who are renting out in in Kiev or in other places or kind of around the country in Ukraine. And you can kind of kind of message the message to people to kind of see where they're at and things like this. And you can like, quote unquote, reserve it, right? Give a reservation to go travel to Kiev, right? And then just tell them, look, I'm not coming, right? Um, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, I wanted to find a small way of actually just kind of reserving it to get you some money to help out. And I think it was in Jamie Davis's case, They fu- she f- was going back and forth and found out that, yes, this person was, was so thankful and found out and was actually like, um, har- you know, basically taking care of some refugees and giving them a kind of place to stay in the midst of all this, right? And that's just that just one more small thing that you could do. It's something that I did. I saw that. I'm like, this is a great idea. I went in this morning. So if you've got some kind of disposable income right now, that um, that's an idea too as well. There's also some great organizations that are out there to um to help support um what's happening in ukraine so um
0: yeah um, and it's not like it's not like so so it's not like booking a hotel like here right like you're not going to be out like a couple hundred dollars i mean unless you want to i mean if you you want to to, yeah because you have to think about the currency exchange rates right like so Mm -hmm. um our money goes so much farther the american dollar goes so much farther so i think jamie had said that when she had done it i mean she literally booked a hotel rooms for like 14 15 a night
1: right i mean that's insane yeah and a couple things to think about too as well if you decide to do this right um number one it's a good idea just to check who's renting it out so it's not going to like some kind of international hotel yeah but it's actually going <laughs> to an individual right that's really something to check out and there's a range right like jamie said she did for like 13 bucks a night right um i saw other ones that were you know kind of 150 bucks a night right so you can look through all the stuff that's there um in order to kind of uh to find something again it, it's not an answer to the problem, but I know that people have been looking for multiple ways that they could help out. You know, and I know that uh, we've got something going through our local union um, at Kutztown um, making sure that, you know, people are contributing to uh, Ukrainian um, humanitarian relief society or something like this um, based out of Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, there's, I gave some money for the, uh, uh, the uh, independent news um, in Ukraine that it's absolutely critical there's some amazing reporters are doing some work. If there's an independent news um, kind of community based they got us, they get support through Patreon, um, and say donations. Um, I could send that out and put that in the notes too as well. So, um, but just wanted to throw that out there. It's got one more thing. So I know it's on a lot of people's mind. So, all right, well, uh, any, so there we go. Um, we're (laughs) off, we're off to, uh, the weekend, at least we can say that. Um, So I hope wishing you an awesome weekend, Amy. And uh, thanks so much for kind of taking the time out today um, um, to talk about this stuff.
0: Yeah, definitely. And um, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, definitely regarding Philadelphia's UBI programs, too, um, I'm sure within the next several months um, and within the year, there's going to be, you know, a lot of reports and a lot of analysis that will be released, which will be very interesting to, to revisit. 100%. 100%.
1: All right, everybody, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, thank you so much. Remember, um, tune in on Monday night on Out to Coop Live. Uh, we're going to be talking about the dark money behind the Concerned Bombs groups and how they're uh, looking to kind of undermine our democracy again. See ya!